Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The participant readings are always a lit fest treat. 2015 was no different. Listen in on this first of three installations of the LitFest participants' reading. A spectrum of work follows, showcasing the depth and variety of the Lighthouse community. Welcome to the first and what so far has been the best participant reading at the Lighthouse LitFest 2015. We do this every year, and it's always... um, to my to my mind, the best the best part of LitFest because we get to hear what what sort of things people are actually working on in the classes, and some some things are amazing and revelatory, and usually there are tears somewhere in the middle of you know the reading. Some at some point tonight you'll be crying, and <laughs> it might be because of something somebody read. It might be because of something you ate earlier, but. Um, <laughs> We have uh, essayists, we have fiction writers, we have at least one poet, I counted, maybe two, and uh, it's a long list tonight. We've got 13 people reading, so we're going to sort of try to move quickly, and um, after about the first seven, I think, we'll take a quick five-minute break and then take the other six. Um, So we're going to start tonight with an essayist. Regina Drexler. Regina Drexler's uh, essays have appeared um, in Colorado Review and West Branch. And she's uh, served on the Lighthouse, uh, the board of Lighthouse, since uh, January 2012. She's currently the co-vice president. Someone to suck up to. She's going to be reading from her creative nonfiction tonight uh, titled Squirrel Trouble. Please welcome Regina Drexler. Okay. um, So this is an excerpt. It's at the beginning of the story. The squirrel was in trouble. Anybody could see that. She was pulling a kite along behind her. At least it looked like a kite. Maybe I should just say that. Although the squirrel was pulling it, it wasn't up in the air. Instead, it was trailing along the ground behind her. As she ran, the kite-shaped object bumbled along, only occasionally becoming airborne for a second or two after hitting some small obstacle in the grass. Then it would come down hard and hit the ground sharply, and although it happened repeatedly and often, it seemed to startle the squirrel each time. My first thought when I saw the squirrel was wrong. My first thought was, that's adorable. That squirrel made a kite, and now she is running through the grass trying to fly it. It it took me a second or two to understand the lack of logic in my thinking. (laughs) As the squirrel ran across the sidewalk a few feet in front of me, toward her destination of a nearby tree, I saw her kite was not really a kite in the traditional sense. Instead, it was a distorted, jumbled mass of small sticks and trash, old leaves and candy wrappers, all held together by the tangled remains of some worn and dingy Halloween cobwebbing. It was the same type of decoration I taped to the bricks of the front porch of our house every October, and into which I threw our small black plastic spiders. The squirrel was pulling the cobwebbing with her, black, with her back right leg, where it was attached by a string of the webbing stretched to nearly a foot and a half long. Because it was stuck to the squirrel's leg, and presumably because she lacked opposable thumbs, she had no choice but to drag it along behind her. 
It occurred to me that I knew exactly what the squirrel was thinking, or at least what she must have been thinking as she first left the porch of one of the old brick homes in our neighborhood, looked back, and noticed something attached to her. What the fuck is that? It looks like, it looks like a kite. And she thought, maybe if I run, I can get it to come off. The kite caused the squirrel significant distress, and she wasted considerable time and effort in devising various strategies to try to get away from it. At first, the kite made her seem unique and interesting to the other squirrels. It garnered her a significant amount of attention for a few weeks. She was, after all, the only squirrel with a kite. The other squirrels often gathered around the kite squirrel then, excitedly making suggestions for how she could rid herself of it. But the kite squirrel had already tried all of their ideas, and none of them had worked. The kite was something that simply never went away, and it was so big and unpleasant that it could never just be ignored. So the other squirrels seemed to tire of it after a short time, understandably. After having tired of it, though, some of the other squirrels got exceptionally mean. Squirrels are sometimes mean, so perhaps that was to be expected. But when the the squirrel with the kite would run by, some of the other squirrels started to point and whisper to each other in hushed tones, so judgmental and condescending. Look at that crazy squirrel. Would you look at that kite? That's dangerous. Soon those squirrels arranged for a cease and desist letter to be delivered to the kite squirrel. The letter letter from the squirrel's council demanded that the kite squirrel immediately stop carting her kite around, a pointless entreaty given that she would have liked nothing more. And although she had actively avoided the other squirrels since the kite had first attached itself, the letter threatened the kite squirrel with a restraining order if she approached the other squirrels or their squirrel babies. The letter made the kite squirrel sound like a dangerous and crazy kite squirrel pedophile. (laughs) And it took considerable effort for the kite squirrel to remember that she wasn't, and that asshole squirrels usually hire asshole squirrel lawyers to threaten... to threaten restraining orders with no basis. It was these squirrels that were giving rodents a bad name. (laughs) The legal system would not provide a restraining order, though, or any other remedy against the kite squirrel, who had never hurt anyone. I watched as the kite squirrel started to climb the tree, but her leg, held back by the kite, was unusable in the effort. And the kite kept getting stuck on the rough bark of the tree trunk, which also prevented her ascent. As I saw the squirrel struggling to climb the tree, I wanted to help her. And that was probably because I understood that the kite squirrel and I shared similar backstories. Thanks, Regina. I was wondering if we were were gonna get the revelation that the kite squirrel was really you. Um, Yeah, no, well, no. What do we call that? Um, a meta something? Um, I'm sorry, I, I never introduced myself. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is J. Diego Fry, um, and I'm a poet and occasional teacher here. And um, so, um, just so you know who's talking to you. Um, our, next, um, our next reader tonight is Laurel Kallenbeck. Uh, Laurel uh, lives in Boulder, Colorado. She works as a freelance magazine writer and book editor. She's earned a master's degree in creative writing from Syracuse University, where she trained in poetry. Um, She also plays bassoon in regional orchestras. And um, for those of you who don't know, the bassoon is the tall instrument that looks like, uh, with the mouthpiece that looks like the shepherd's crook. Um, And it's not the oboe. (laughs) 
Um, uh, Laurel's going to be reading uh, from her novel in progress about a young musician in Nazi Germany. Please welcome Laurel Kallenbeck. This scene takes place in Munich um, in the spring of 1933. Rutger sat at the piano, his fingers gentling the chord of Mendelssohn's Andante Cantabile. He let his head hang loosely to one side, lolling in time with the rising ripples that passed from bass clef to treble, left hand to right. The house exhaled with contentment. He was alone and free to play whatever he liked. Muti was at the market, and his sister Truda was at the coffee shop, smoking up a storm and plotting nonsense with her radical friends. A knock on the door splintered his reverie. His hands jolted into the air as if the ivory keys emitted electrical shocks. Rutger clenched his fingers and smashed them to his chest. How stupid to have played the forbidden Mendelssohn, even for brief minutes in a solitary house banished Jew notes. He imagined the revulsion of his old Hitler youth leader upon hearing that his pupil was polluting himself with degenerate, un-Germanic melodies. The door banging continued, and Rutger panicked. What evidence would the Gestapo find? The sheet music for Mendelssohn's piano trio, songs without words, Muti's violin concerto, and more. The family's Mendelssohn collection amounted to a three-centimeter pile. In January, when Hitler became chancellor, Truda had hidden the pages to keep him from burning them. Out of weakness, he had not sought the hiding place. Her words, convincing at the time, repeated in his ears, "'Won't you feel like a doomkopf when Goebbels comes to his senses because he misses his Midsummer Night's Dream?' No one in their right mind would ban a genius German composer, especially one who converted to Christianity. He banged his sternum again. Imbecile! He should have thrown the music in the fire when he had the chance. The urgent knocking repeated. Rutger snapped to his feet and hurried to the door, dreading the brown-shirted official he pictured on the stoop. But it was only Lucas, the butcher's delivery boy, a dullard who wouldn't know Mendelssohn from Brahms. Relief roared through Rutger's body so loudly it drowned out the boy's words. He extended his hand to receive a package of sausages, surely the reason this lanky teen was pawing at the door. But the kid waved a fragment of brown meat wrapping paper and mouthed, a telephone call from Herr Somebody of the Bavarian State Opera downtown calling for a pianist. Here's the number. Dazed, Rutger slipped on his jacket and followed Lucas three blocks to the butcher's shop, where the telephone sat on a table beside the bloody cutting block. He waited while the butcher took an order for veal, then repeated to the operator the number and name on the paper. His heart hammered like a timpani while waiting to be connected. When he heard a man's voice on the line, he cleared his throat to respond. Ja, guten tag, ja. A member of the party, yes, since I was 18 years old. Ja, of course. Wagner, the Flying Dutchman. This afternoon at half past one. Meet Maestro Eichenberger at the stage door, ja. 
Yeah, I will bring my Aryan papers. Heil Hitler. In less time than it took the butcher to separate ribs from the rack, the conversation was over. A few thwacks of the meat cleaver, and Rutger was engaged to accompany the Bavarian State Opera Chorus for their afternoon rehearsal. The Jewish accompanist had been dismissed, as had all the Jews and spouses of Jews, singers and instrumentalists alike. Thank you, Laurel. Um, it's kind of bizarre to think of a time when uh, the band music was Felix Mendelssohn. <laughs> um, our next reader uh, tonight is uh, Ellen Nordberg. Uh, Ellen is an essayist. She writes essays, um, some of them funny, some of them poignant, uh, often about her 11-year-old twins or inspired by them. Uh, Ellen writes for... Uh, 5280 Magazine and Denver Post, and um, I think tonight she's going to read us uh, either a funny or a poignant essay inspired by her uh, 11-year-old twins. Please welcome Ellen Nordberg. J.D. voted for funny, so we're going with that. This is called The Roadrunner, The Identical Twins, and The Garage Door Opener. My identical twins can cook up more complicated mayhem than a pair of raccoons trapped in a Christmas tree shop. I struggle to turn these episodes into teachable moments. An example. It's a winter day and we're late for gymnastics. I yell downstairs to my five-year-old boys to grab coats and get in the car. I dash to the bathroom only to hear the garage door go up, then go down again, then up, then down again. I wave my hands quickly under the faucet. The door goes up again, And then I hear a grinding clunk, like an elevator getting stuck between floors. I slap my hands at a towel and bolt for the garage. Fortunately, my boys have not yet learned how to lie well, cover their tracks, or at least just run and scatter. One boy stands frozen in the doorway to the garage, his finger repeatedly jabbing the control panel. (laughs) With no result. The other boy stands under the half-raised garage door, his hand still lifted above his head, clinging to the dangling, tattered rope. Both of their faces look like wily Coyote as he goes off the cliff. <laughs> it takes me all of three seconds to recreate the crime. One boy pushes the button for the opener, while the other hangs onto the rope attached to the door, riding up to the ceiling before letting go and dropping down to the cement. Then they reverse rolls. With the door stuck partway up, I take a turn at the button. Nothing. They've burned out the motor, and we're trapped in the garage. I launch into an angry meltdown scene worthy of Sharon Stone in the movie Casino, complete with swear words, slamming car doors, and clanging metal stepladders. Then I call my rocket scientist husband out of a meeting to devise an escape plan. I run out of patience with his engineering explanation of the overdrive circuit and end up going medieval on the unbudgeable manual release chain. (laughs) Finally, I get the door unstuck and free the car. We make it to the gym. The boy's entire Thomas the Train collection gets placed on a high shelf for one week as punishment. 
A few weeks later, at a barbecue of five twin families, I relate the garage door writing tale to our friends. My twin mom girlfriends show the appropriate expressions of horror. How unsafe! Someone could have gotten really hurt falling on the cement. Was the garage door opener expensive to repair? Then I turn back to the grill and catch the faces of the dads, who look like they've just been told of a new invention that would allow someone... (laughs) A new invention that would allow someone to ride a unicycle up a tree. You know, one of them says, you got to give them credit. It's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, my husband agrees, sipping his beer. Too bad we didn't have electric garage door openers when we were five. All the male heads seated around the deck nod like NFL bobblehead dolls. As the moms roll their eyes, shrug their shoulders, and hand out popsicles to the kids, I think about how perhaps my boys have been taught a valuable lesson, and that maybe this is the last time they'd have the nerve to conduct such an experiment. But if the reaction of their father and his friends is any indication, doubtful. Thank you, Ellen. That was worth it. Um, next up, we have um, uh, Petra Perkins. Petra. Where's, where is she? Oh. Next we, have, next, we have Petra Perkins, who has a, 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 a small but rabid fan base with her tonight. Um, Small, rabid squirrel fan base. Um, Petra likes uh, writing essay humor, essay humor, fiction, and poetry, and is working to popularize an underrepresented genre, that of faction. <laughs> because, as she puts it, everything she writes is basically true, unless it isn't. Um, she hopes to finish her first memoir this year, and that's The God's Honest Truth. And she'll be reading from her piece... Don't cry for Doris Day. Please welcome Petra Perkins. Thank you. (laughs) I just came from Sherry Codron's workshop on uh, how to make you cry, how to make people cry. My husband said, you really need that. So this is dedicated to Sherry and to Dave Barry, who said, who always said, I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. In my family, I'm what they call the sensitive one. Mom urged me, don't cry so much. But it was her fault because she took me to the movies of Doris Day, renowned for crying out her big baby blues. I'd weep along with her over Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, Rock Hudson, Doris started being my mentor when I was seven. At eight, I spouted like a geyser after my first Monopoly game. They thought I'd lost my little mind. Turns out I was awed to tears over what I now see as culmination of strategy. I was impressed to see how you could plan something and it would culminate in the desired result. Very early on, I revered the strategy of setting tactics in motion, generating plot twists, which converge in the big reveal. 
Were these signs of a budding novelist? A Victoria ch Victoria's chess player declaring mate made me weep in ecstasy. Then there was symmetry at hockey games. I loved when they ran the Zamboni. <laughs> I was moved to hot tears by the machines scalloping the ice into perfect designs. Symmetry is like an offshoot of strategy. I could sob over perfectly mowed diamond patterns in green grass. I can't tell you what I'd do if I saw actual alien crop circles. <laughs> but it starts with O. <laughs> it was a strange place where I... <laughs> that wasn't in here. It was a strange place where I discovered the fine crossover line between crying and laughing in a cemetery where my boyfriend and I went to make out. Do they say make out anymore? <clears throat> we, we kept a blanket in the back of the old Pontiac for partying. <clears throat> so there we were, one starry night, like seriously passionate, and I'm taking a kissing breather, checking around for ghosts, and I looked up at the stone we were using for a headboard. <laughs> you are right in thinking we shouldn't have set up camp in, by a headstone but y'all know about being stoned on love and beer so I look up and see this name etched in granite the name is George Duda D-U-D-A Duda and I think of Camp Town Races singing their song and I start to hum <laughs> and my boyfriend starts to sing Camp Town Races sing their song. And then we're both like, oh, dude, I day. <laughs> All verses, seriously loud, yucking it up, and I get the hiccups, and I can't stop. And, it, and it's like the more you try, the more impossible. And your ribs ache, and you can't breathe. It morphs into crying. And there we are in the cemetery, bawling better than Doris Day, and no one had even died recently. <laughs> I made up my own word for the thing you do where you laugh so hard that you cry I call it crafting like like crying laughing crafting so I forgot to tell you first before crafting there were these heart-wrenching musicals like Les Miserables West Side Story Evita bringing on my own version of Oprah's ugly cry a favorite tearjerker was the signature song of Evita don't cry for me Argentina Madonna really nailed that one, and it became a heaving two hanky night. My husband slid down in his seat. Hey, he knew about me. He was the one in the cemetery. <laughs> okay, then I changed when I had kids. I didn't want my children being overly sensitive, so every time I felt like crying, I'd laugh. Like the morning I'd been moved from the labor room to the delivery room after 15 hours... The head nurse had contacted the obstetrician by messenger. Um, there weren't any cell phones then. And he told her to tell me to hold it. Don't push. <laughs> he also said he needed to finish his golf game before heading to the hospital. <laughs> the head nurse, the one that could see the baby's head, <laughs> seemed really disgusted. She said, yep, that's what he said. Don't push. He needs to finish his golf game. Dave Barry, Dave Barry. <laughs> I said, WTF? Well, we didn't say WTF then, but I said something like that. 
maybe bloody hell. (laughs) The nurse's lips clamped down like she was trying not to cry. But not me, baby. I was not going to cry. I mean, that's what Doris Day would have done, except for the part where she wouldn't even be in this fix because she never had sex. (laughs) Not Not one time in all those movies. And by the way... W, U, what's up with that? <laughs> so I'm laid out flat in the OR, everything hanging out with a seriously scream-worthy contraction every two minutes, <laughs> with my doctor a mile away shooting his balls over a duck pond. <laughs> so <laughs> I just thought, well, fuck a duck. I mean, fuck a doc. <laughs> and... <laughs> And here I go laughing, cackling so hard, me, the big mother laying the hen, cracking up. And then the crapping started, and I couldn't stop. And the nurse sedated me, and probably herself. (laughs) And a good thing, or we both might have crapped in the doc's face when he finally came waltzing in, (laughs) in his golf shirt, like tiger fucking woods. That baby had a baby, my tiny granddaughter, who could really sing. She could perform any Broadway hit if she heard it twice, like Annie, The Sound of Music. She knew all of them, straight from my stereo. Do they say stereo? No. Well, (laughs) one day I had my Madonna Evita album on, and suddenly my granddaughter belts out, Don't cry for me, orange tuna. Tears well up in my eyes. I giggle like a girl, fall to the floor, roll over and over, holding my mouth. And she says, it's not funny, Grandma. And I say, sweetheart, it's Argentina. Don't cry for me, Argentina. And she says, no, it's orange tuna. And tells me her mom mixed orange juice in the tuna fish to make it orange. And she would cried because it was so gross. <laughs> On Oldies Radio, I heard Doris Day, the drama queen, singing one of her hits, crying my eyes out over you. I thought of all those countless years, countless tears, and countless men she wasted those tears on, and I, tell, I ask you, for what? Except for dozens of dogs, Doris has been alone for decades in her Pacific Oceanfront mansion. <laughs> so I'm not crying for her or for any Zamboni anymore. But... The ghost of the sensitive one might still be heard in a cemetery, crafting her ass off over some dude. I mean, dude <laughs> Thank you, Petra. That lived up to the hype. <laughs> um, next up, we have uh, Karen Levenbrook. Karen, um... Oh, hi. So I'm, I'm not wearing my glasses because I'm trying to read, so I can't see any of you. I don't even know if you're there. Um, Karen. Karen Levenbrook uh, writes short stories and, and is currently working on a novel, um, and she will be reading a scene from her novel. The novel is titled uh, Safe Travel in Bear Country. Please welcome Karen Levenbrook. Thank you. Uh, this won't be fun. Hard lack to follow there. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, this scene is uh, about 20, 30 pages in, and my character, uh, Zizzy, my main character, has uh, gone in search of her lover, Jack, who has disappeared for a few days, uh, supposedly gone back to work on his father's house on the reservation. 
The sunset was hot pink in her rearview mirror, the landscape all sage, scrub oak, and dust. She could see, even in July, the white-capped peaks and snow in the north-facing crevasses where it would never melt. She knew the trails, the cirques, the couloirs, and lakes from the long treks she'd done as a child, but that seemed another lifetime. She stopped at the tribal office to ask, to ask, ask directions to Jack's house. They stared and didn't answer for a minute, then did, pointing fingers for direction. Down there, see the greenhouse with the barn? Turn left there, then up toward the foothills. There's nothing else around it. Have you called him? Noses, he said. You might want to call first, they said, but she didn't. The pink stucco building looked more like a large garage than a house. She saw the edge of an outbuilding in the back and assumed that was his father's old studio. Chickens fluttered out of her way as she walked up the path to his front door. There were remnants of a garden, but now the weeds had taken over and tomatoes and green peppers lay rotting, covered in ants. She knocked. No one answered, but she heard noises. Wasn't that the scuffling of feet, people talking? She turned the knob. It was unlocked. She opened it and gave a gentle push hoping to peek in just a little, but the door flew open on a squeaky hinge. A woman stared back at her from a mushroom-colored couch, black hair, black eyes, pretty. That was the word that hung with her, pretty. There was movement, and then she saw a man framed in a doorway. The light behind him turned his figure into a dark silhouette. Maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was someone else who stared at her like she was a stranger, like she was no one. Jack? We were talking, he said. Her chest was tight, making it hard to breathe. Her words came out clipped and gaspy. I see that. His his arms hung, hung down at his sides, giving away nothing, no clues, all secrets. But she recognized his build, the perfect posture. Of course it was him. Her hand reached for the doorknob as she turned to go. Close the door. Close it now. Turn. Walk away. Walk. A raven squawked in a tree, a scraggly half-dead tree, the branches hanging sad. The bird was the color of the woman's hair. Its quirky voice was a laugh, a you-are-a-stupid-girl laugh. The air was dead. There was heat. Heat from the brick path leading away from his door. Heat from the soil stained red. Heat from her closed jeep. Her heart was on fire. Right now, start the car and drive away. The girl was wearing primary colors. She couldn't have been over 18, 20, no. Maybe they were the same age. No matter, she was a girl. She was on his couch. The house was not being fixed up, as he'd said, not under construction, not even clean. It smelled of rotting fruit and old milk, the reek of milk that had turned. Yes, that was it. Then the road out, the junk cars, the dirty children, the roaming dogs. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. That was excellent. Evocative. Um, let's see. Next up, we have uh, Allison Alexander. Where is she? There she is. Um, I love this title uh, Seven Centuries of Sin. Is a historical, uh, I mean, it's a great title. It's uh, is a historical novel 
set in 11th century France, um, tells the story of the forbidden relationship between Ben, who's a monk who's taken a vow of silent celibacy, and Adela, the daughter of a priest. Um, the, ex- the extract that Allison is going to read for us is a scene from early in the couple's relationship. It follows a period of estrangement caused by their first disastrous attempt to have sex. (laughs) Please welcome Alison Alexander. Okay, so this is the point in my novel, really, which explains why this couple, who really shouldn't have been having any kind of relationship at all, end up having one. Ben told her of the novice master who died when he was ten, how he had cleaved to that man, although he flipped and changed in constant. He told her how that man would shift, how he was one thing at one moment and another in the next, how the transformation must be their secret, to speak of it as sin. He could put a boy at ease, that man, could soothe his battered conscience, provide the warmth that each one yearned for. Ben told her of the dark places in an abbey where the silence folded over him, where he did not cry, but it would not have mattered if he had. He told her of the loneliness of everyone knowing, the bargains they all made to accommodate the sin that walked amongst them. And he told her of the way he died, an old and liverish man with a sin that sickened deep inside him, how that man had called for Ben and held his hand and claimed him for his own. How after that, Ben knew to hide so well he no longer found himself. How she had found him. How she had changed him. He told her how her warm breath against his face was an echo of the lies that man had peddled to soften fearful flesh. He said that when she touched him, her hand became that man's, the moisture of her skin on his, the callous damp of that man's mouth. She felt his words as a wave that broke upon her, which suffused her body with such force it left it hurting. A connection which flowed liquid through her body, which changed it and welded it forever with the one who had inspired it. She saw that talking stripped him, left him raw and weak beside her, and she stripped herself in turn. She told him things she never talked of, things her parents did when she was small, She told him how her father changed as she grew older, how changing tenets twist a weak man's soul, how he thought it better to lie with harlots than the mother of his children, how he turned on his wife with such loathing, how he blamed her for his sin, and how Adela had lived it all, trapped in that house with walls like parchment, the sound of flesh against flesh like the slap of bare feet in wet mud, when everybody else had fled with nothing else to do but hear and witness what it was to be a woman. All alone they clung together, kissed the pain-tight skin across each other's faces. They held each other close so that they shook and breathed as one. She kissed him, slow and warm and careful, with the power she had to heal him. She stroked her hands across his face, smoothed away wrinkles of concern. She would heal him. She would make him whole. I love you, she told him, and she held him steady in her hands. The summer built around them, the heat stench in the city, the flies and the hunger, all of it unnoticed. They found their secret places, in the woods, by the river, 
in hidden niches by the city. They found places they could lie together, to kiss, and then do more. She waited passive underneath him, and let him fumble as he wished, existing all alone in the space that was left between striving and abstaining. She felt him rally and drive, and then smiled as he sank on top of her, a quivered pelt, ecstatic glow, and she felt warm with what she gave him. It was a different thing, this passionate, passionless love. It was a selfless thing, yet one that made her rich. It had never been in her power to help someone before, to give someone a gift and see them blossom in its light. It was her gift to him, to one she loved, of the potential he had inside him. That was beautiful. Thank you. That was a gift. Um, we're going to do one more uh, reader and then take a quick five to seven minute break so you can refill your wine glasses. Um, our our next reader is um, another uh, Lighthouse Lit Fest favorite, Anna Stull. Um, Anna um, is... Uh, one of our book project participants and um, uh, describes describes herself as life, Lighthouse's resident dictator nurse. <laughs> and she's not kidding. That's exactly... Um, I, and uh, Anna's going to, I think, read uh, nonfiction for us tonight. Essay? Yes. Please welcome Anna Stoll. Hi. So, wow. That okay, everybody give it up for the sex scene. <laughs> um disappointedly tonight I was going to read something a little different. I was going to read an essay that I wrote about uh removing a nail out of a man's scrotum. And uh to try to kind of challenge myself a little bit and I realized I had lost a notebook with four and a half months worth of writing in it. So, To rally and get back up on that horse, uh, this is the first two pages of my book. As I stood at the chain-link fence, my hands holding his dry, cracked finger, the morning sun continued to climb, taking temperature and hope with it. After after several years of his incarceration at Abu Ghraib, Ismael still stood a few inches above six feet, with a slim, corded neck covered by soft, cascading wrinkles. And although in his 60s, the time spent without hope aged him decades. Behind what was once a genuine smile, his overcrowded teeth were stained a chocolate brown and in poor condition. Perhaps from the poverty of the situation or his genetics or both. But when he spoke, his accent explained it all. He was British. I cleaned Ismail's finger with an alcohol prep pad and then pierced the side of it with a lancet for blood. Most of us, detainee and captor alike, were dehydrated in the heat of summer. The blood slowly emerged in a thick, dark bubble, so, vis- so vis- viscous. Ooh, don't use that in a, like if you have to say it out loud. <laughs> That's a tough one. Uh, the wound began to close up immediately. Using a small plastic rod, much like a hollow matchstick, I quickly scraped a small drop of blood on the tip and loaded it into loaded the sample into my handheld glucose monitoring device. I looked at him. Shrub my, Sadiq. 
for this Arabic I knew my, by heart. Drink water, my friend. Neither of us surprised his blood sugar had served, surged off the chart, as most in this situation. Thousands of detainees lived in tented compounds at Abu Ghraib. They ate subpar mass-produced foods, drank sugary local tea instead of water, and although heating and air conditioning was provided to the best of the United States Army's ability, the detainees spent most of their days in extreme weather conditions. With the addition of the stress of war in prison, most men were in poor health. Without hesitation, Ismail instinctually pulled his prison-issue yellow button-up shirt above his bare belly and pressed himself against the fence. The diamond shape of the chain link naturally forced his skin into perfect protruding pillows. I cleaned one with more alcohol, injected the fleshy diamond with insulin, and moved to the next patient waiting. After recording all of the data in the day's medication list and, and noting the various complaints, I packed up. Relentless winds swirled dust into curtains that veiled my walk to the next tent. My Army Nurse Corps assignment required me to don 68 pounds of gear in order to administer insulin twice a day to the med- medically fragile of Abu Ghraib prison. It was 2006, and the war had been going strong for three solid years, which had Abu bursting at the seams. The rumor, med said, the rumor mill said we were over 10,000 prisoners. However, open source documentation states only 6,000. My office consisted of a cracked plastic container filled with charts and supplies that I carried with me for 12 hours a day. The insulin was kept cold in a pouch next to a reusable ice pack where ammo would have gone. No firearms were allowed in the detainee camps, only less than lethal means of prisoner suppression. But really, anything with a good headshot, it can kill. My hands were full as most of my pockets, stuffed with chilled Gatorade and needles as I trudged across rocky, uneven terrain. Traveling from camp to camp with streams of salty sweat stinging my eyes. Some days I experience heat like I have never known before. Even the mercury seemed to have evaporated leaving just a tiny drop at 120 degrees Fahrenheit. The Abu Ghraib internment facility was located in the town of Abu Ghraib, go figure, 20 miles west of Baghdad. A pockmarked and worn 20-foot concrete exterior sniper wall surrounded the perimeter, ensconcing nearly three miles of land, three square miles of land. The footprint was divided into sections. At the core was a full landing zone, a tarmac, the death house, an old prison, a warehouse, all of which were flanked by enormous tented compounds that housed the current detainee population. At a deserted corner of the ground stood the remnants of the old Iraqi Olympic Training Center, a sad and haunting area seldom visited by anyone. There were many 12-foot interior walls that encased several large outdoor compounds, and nested inside were even smaller fenced-in areas. At the lowest level of the compounds, men were sequestered in size in various Eureka tents, each mockingly secured with a concentric ring of chain-link fence. The higher the risk, those individuals held only between 15 and 30 men, but the general population tents held about 500 men per section. All prisoners were divided into categories based on race, religion, severity of charge, all of which spanned over two square miles. Sunni, Shia, 
Uh oh. Third country nationals comprise the majority of the populations, notably Kurds, Tekfiri, Wahhabi, Al Qaeda, and Taliban, were in smaller proportions housed in a more secure and secluded setting called Red South. Occasionally, newly acquired detainees would lie about which side of the which side of the Islamic faith fence they were on, and they would lie, or they would lie about being older than they were. They'd end up in the wrong tent only to be beaten by the residents of Tent City within hours. Most lived through the experience, but some did not. In my initial surprise, the facility had imprisoned children. We were not prepared for children. They were lumped together regardless of religion and based on, regardless of religion, just based on age. And lastly, to my personal surprise, were a prominent group of Bathist women that had been there since the invasion of 2003. This, this is a, a poem from my recently published uh, second book of poetry. It's called The Year... No, it's not. Yes, it is. It's called The Year the Eggs Cracked. Um, This poem is called um, Stardust. Um, Stardust, okay. Inside every promise there hides a small curse. The sexiest smile eventually turns stiff true love is bad obligation is worse inside every promise there hides a small curse so for now let's make out in the back of your hearse (laughs) let the time and the tide and the continents drift inside every promise there hides a small curse the sexiest smile eventually turns stiff. That's from my book. Um, our next reader, uh, we had a great, we had a great first half, I think, didn't we? It's it's going to be a real a real effort to uh, live up to the people who went before you, you you following six. So. Uh, we're all pulling for you. Our next reader is Colleen Bush. Um, Colleen is the author of Fire Monks, which is the true story of how a group of monks saved the oldest Zen Buddhist monastery in the U.S. from wildfire. Where was that? Asahara, near Big Sur, California. Wow, that's cool. Um, she has finished a novel manuscript entitled What Lies Between Us, and tonight she's going to read um, from neither of those. Uh, she'll read a piece of flash, flash fiction written in response to a prompt to write a story beginning with the line, I didn't know it was made out of butter. Please welcome Colleen Bush. Thank you. I feel like I chickened out with the novel, not reading from it, but... Um, I was inspired by those of you that didn't chicken out and read from your novels. So, it's called My Butter Likeness. I didn't know it was made out of butter. Not right away, at least. 
you see a sculpture and you don't think butter. You think clay, bronze, copper, sandalwood, not land of lakes. <laughs> Late one Saturday morning, I stopped by the bakery where my boyfriend Russell worked. He led me to the walk-in, a smile of anticipation on his face that made me think he was going to ravage me against the steel shelves, bite the frozen lobes of my ears, his breath coming out in steamy puffs. Remember the butter cow lady we saw on Letterman, he said, reaching behind a box labeled whole wheat, 15 pounds. I remembered her all right. The one who said there wasn't any kind of cow she couldn't sculpt. I hadn't even known there were kinds of cows. I remembered she'd carved a life-sized rendition of The Last Supper out of 2,000 pounds of Iowa sweet cream butter. <laughs> Russell's sculpture was about as tall as a cinnamon twist turned upright, pale as farmer's cheese. I imagined him working in his flower-dusted apron, teasing out strands of hair with a fingernail, shaping nipples with his fingertips. My hair's not that long, I said. <laughs> Russell's face fell, but it was true. I'd never been able to grow my hair past my shoulders, even when I ate yogurt and took B vitamins. And I didn't say anything about the breasts, plumper, rounder than mine. It's representational, he said. I'm not much of a pastry eater myself. I imagined her, some woman who came into the bakery every morning with a sweet tooth, one of those unkempt hippie wannabes who walk around with bare feet, no bra, and hairy underarms, a perfect figure, but no sense to flaunt it. I gotta go. Dee Dee's in the car, I said. Dee Dee's my four-year-old Chewini, part, dox part dachshund, part chihuahua. They're, they exist. They're very cute. <laughs> Russell handed me the sculpture on a trimmed cardboard pizza round. She was slightly off-center and surprisingly light. She's molded around a popsicle stick, he said, smiling like he'd handed me an Oscar. You'll have to keep her in the fridge. <laughs> I, car I carried the sculpture back to the car where Dee Dee was sleeping in the sun on the dashboard, and then I drove to Russell's. I let Dee Dee wander around the fenced-in backyard and started a note to leave on the table where he tosses his mail. Representational of what, I wrote. That was all. I had a strange feeling in my stomach, like when you smell something rancid. I stuffed the crumpled paper in my purse. I gave my butter likeness a haircut instead, smudging out the long locks beneath her shoulders. Before I left, I set her in the fridge next to the other dairy, the eggs and milk and sour cream. <laughs> so she'd be there, cold and accurate and lonely when he got home. That was great. Another example of a story... Uh, uh, obliquely referring to the person who wrote the story. Um, our next reader, let's see, is Dorothea Bono. Um, Dorothea is uh, grateful to her seven sons and her criminal defense attorney husband who have supported her work and provided the insight into character and motivation that fuels her writing. 
Uh, her published credits include a novel, two optioned screenplays, stage plays, articles, and a weekly newspaper column. Uh, she's going to be read to us tonight from her historical fiction novel in process in progress called uh, the, the Heiress of Heaven. Please welcome Dorothea Bono. So by this time in the novel, you would know that Callie and Alexandra are cousins. They are daughters of affluent planters in South Carolina. The year is 1808. Callie is white and Alexandra is black. Before the young ladies are halfway down the stairs, they see a strange man with a sheriff's star winking in the high noon sun galloping toward them. Three deputies spur their horses in an effort to catch up. Cousin Callie leans close to Alexandra. Let's duck behind the snowball bush before they see us, she says, as she hides the dancing master's book in the gardenia planter. The girls have reached the bottom step when the men rein their horses to a stop and block their way. The new sheriff, who wears a top hat too small for his enormous head, points at Alexandra. Girl, get me some water. Alexandra reaches for Callie's hand, but her cousin pulls away. You deaf? Get me some water, now. The beefy man's eyes graze over Alexandra's body. He clucks his tongue and turns to Callie. You're too old to be dressing your darkies in your clothes like they was dolls. These are my clothes, says Alexandra, wrapping her arms around the yellow silk dress Papa brought her from Paris. The sheriff and his deputies laugh. Tell him, Callie, these clothes are mine. You let your slave order you around, the sheriff asks. I'm not her slave. Callie backs up the stairs. Tell him. Callie edges into the house and eases the door shut. Alexandra plants her feet and faces the sheriff. My father will want a word with you. The vein on the sheriff's neck pumps the venom that makes men crazy. Alexandra is about to turn and run when Aunt Isabel glides out the back door like a cool breeze with Mother close behind. Where's Sheriff Adams? asks Aunt Isabel in her blue velvet voice. Heart attack. You'll be laid up a month or two. Traveling judge deputized me. How are Mary and Margaret getting along? asks Aunt Elizabeth. Who? asks the sheriff. Uh, Sheriff Adams, wife and daughter. Don't know him. Y'all are new to Georgetown area, aren't you? Yes, ma'am. But surely you've heard of Heaven's Hill, the oldest plantation on the Petey. Yes, ma'am, says the sheriff, so fast that Alexandra guesses he's lying. Well, then, I am pleased to present the mistress of that famous plantation, Miss Josephine de Gambia. Mother runs her fingers through her auburn hair and offers up a Mona Lisa smile. The sheriff tips his hat. And her daughter, my niece, Alexandra de Gambia. The sheriff gawks. 
Now, if you're all still thirsty, you and your men are welcome to use the well in the back of the blacksmith shop. The water's fresh and sweet, sure to cool you down on a hot day like this. Thank you very much. Our next reader, uh, Jerry Wilson, has uh, come all the way from Mississippi for her second Lit Fest. Welcome back. Um, Her debut story collection is forthcoming from Press 53 in the fall. Congratulations. And she'll be reading the opening of a short story called Sparrow, Sparrow. Please welcome Jerry Wilson. Um, Not everything I write is this southern. This just happens to be sort of southern. Um, It's called Sparrow, Sparrow. First couple of pages. Sunday mornings when Mama sleeps late, my older sister Charlene and I clamor over her in the bed like pups nuzzling for a teat. Mama wakes and swats at us and says, leave me alone. But she gives in and takes our shivering, scrawny little selves under her covers. Our daddies have moved on by then. We don't have the same one. The other men have not started coming around yet. It's just Mama, Charlene, and me, and we are enough. Later, the men come and go. They are not even our stepdaddies. The summer I'm 11 and Charlene is 14, there's a man who sticks around for a while until Mama catches him with his hands on my sister. Mama swears off men after that. She takes to her bed and reads her Bible and weeps. Her lamentation, she says, for her sins. We girls are marked by her sins, she says. I, Laura, was born with dark marks on both sides of my neck, like fingerprints, as though, Mama says, the devil had hold of me and didn't want to let me be born. She says Charlene's mark is her beauty. By the time Charlene is 16... She wants to drop out of school and get a job. Any job would be better than that hellhole, Charlene says. But Mama says, watch your mouth in front of your sister. And no, you've got to finish. I don't want you girls turning out like me. I want whatever Charlene wants. I am her shadow. She tells me to go away, but I don't. At night, I like to watch her brush her hair before bed. I'm awake when she gets up and goes to the window and stands there naked, looking out. I wonder what she sees or if she sees anything at all. I get up and wrap a blanket around her. Go back to bed, I say. Go to sleep. At dinner on the grounds after church, Charlene shuns the boys and stands off to the side in the shade. She sucks her thumb the way she used to when she was little and dances in one spot like she hears music nobody else can hear. Her hair, pale, glossy gold, falls about her shoulders and moves in the breeze. That hair alone is a beacon of temptation, Mama says. At home, Charlene sings little songs she makes up in her head. Charlene's songs are not like the music you hear on radio or TV. Whatever her eye falls upon becomes a song in that moment, and then it's gone. 
I ask her why she won't write them down, and she says they aren't meant for anybody else to hear. Until she meets a man named Otha Sparks, who plays guitar in a band. Where'd you meet him? Mama asks. Somewhere, is Charlene's answer. The first time Otha comes to the house, his dark hair is tied back in a ponytail. His skin looks weathered like he works outdoors, the tips of his fingers calloused from playing. He wears earrings. A tattoo shows beneath his rolled-up shirt sleeve. The part I can see looks like feathers, and I yearn to see the rest. He follows Charlene around with a little black machine and records her songs. The second time he comes, he brings his guitar. Mama has washed her hair and put on a pretty dress and her favorite boots made of real finely tooled leather. She cooks dinner, but she and I are the only ones who eat. Charlene and Otha snuggle on the couch, her back to him, his arms cradling her and the guitar, his left hand over hers on the frets, moving her fingers to make chords, their right hands joined, strumming. Mama watches like a guard dog. I close my eyes and sway to the music, moving my lips, forming words without sounds, because I cannot carry a tune. Thank you, Jerry. That's a great image of the two people playing guitar like that. Um, By a remarkable coincidence, our next reader has the same last name and also is from Mississippi. Um, Austin Wilson. You two related? Okay. Austin Wilson uh, was born and grew up in Waycross, Georgia, near the Okefenokee Swamp um, and the Georgia coast, which are places he often writes about. Um, He taught literature and writing at Millsaps College in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, for 33 years. His poems and fiction have appeared in Poem, Southern Humanities Review, Wind, Descant, Mississippi Review, New Orleans Review, Spillway, Bloodroot, The Southern Poetry Review, and From the Green Horseshoe, poems by Jane Sticky's students. Wow, I'm jealous. Um, Austin is going to read three short poems for us tonight, uh, titled Death, Bus Trip, and Sugar Beach. Please welcome Austin Wilson. I'm Jerry's traveling companion. And in fact... These are all Southern poems, mostly from oh, Georgia, and uh, there's one from the Florida Panhandle. And, but they're all sort of set on those roads you'd get off of if you got off the interstate. Death. Death is like a buzzard. When it keeps its distance, circling way up, it's elevated, stately. Noble as an eagle. But nearer, it's like when you come around a curve and have to swerve to avoid a buzzard squatting on a carcass and you shudder, seeing the ugly red head up close, catching a whiff of the stink, and watching it hop a little, 
flapping its great black wings, barely clearing the ground, then sullenly waddling out of your path, waiting till you're gone. This, this is called Bus Trip, and um, it goes through Mississippi on its way, way to Georgia. At dusk, we left Memphis, and still, and all the way to, let me start over. At dusk, we left Memphis, and all the way south to Tupelo, the drunk sharing my armrests, he stunk of whiskey, talked about the death of his mother he was going to face in Mobile. All the way to Tupelo, he kept tapping the soft spot of the baby's skull whenever the mother in the seat ahead lifted the baby up to her shoulder. Finally, she caught him. I played dumb. He complained, she complained, and at Tupelo, he was put off pleading about the funeral waiting for him. I saw him fighting with the cop as we pulled out of the Tupelo bus depot. We made up the time we lost in Tupelo before we reached Birmingham, losing an hour, though, when we crossed into Georgia, time I'll never make up until I go west again. <laughs> this is about a little beach, a little B&B, an old private beach on Florida Panhandle, sort of near Seaside, if you know where Seaside is. But this is the old Florida still. It's a sonnet. A rabbit, half hidden in the dunes brambles, sits so close to the path down to the beach that we have to resist the urge to reach out and stroke its ears. The rabbit trembles, its only motion. Its eyes on us hold steady. We slip, stumbling, sink into the dunes' loose sand. Wobbling like old drunks, we can barely stand, weighted with ice chests, beach chairs, all we carry the rest of our lives. This long trip, the last light we've stopped to catch. We sunbathe at sunset. Ghost crabs like wind-blown sand skitter towards spindrift foam on the edge of the water. We shift closer in the dimming light. There is a cooling breeze. We are on the verge of everything. Thank you, Austin. That was great. Um, our next reader, Joshua Martinson. There he is. Um, Joshua Martinson's is uh, slightly less than six feet tall. He is more or less symmetrical. He would like to thank those of you who have stayed this long. His novel is about Duncan, who is who is seeking his... Uh, for his vanished ex-wife, a 50-year-old unsolved murder case and a letter with a postmark from a non-existent town called Rubicon 
have led him to one David Jones, a retired sheriff living in Malhauer County, Oregon. Please welcome Joshua Martinsons. Just take a deep breath, sit back, and we'll all get through this just fine. Pain! Pain like you can't believe down my leg. I look and there's a rattler, I swear, as long as my arms and as thick as my wrist, as white as a ghost, with its goddamn fangs gummed deep in my shin, right in the old war wound. He spread his arms as wide as he could, crooked two fingers, hooked them into the air. Duncan, I thought I was going to die. But that snake had started curling and writhing, like it had a mouthful of live wire instead of my old shin bone. Lashing, it whipped itself near into knots before it let go and hauled away into the grass by the bank as fast as it could. I blacked out, I reckon. Came to later, my rod broke in half in my hands and my mouth full of blood because I'd bit through my tongue. I was afraid to look, thought for sure the leg would be so swollen I couldn't walk. But it wasn't bad at all. Just two puncture holes, right where I keep my souvenirs from North Korea. But nothing like the other rattler bites I've seen. Jones put his leg up on the table hiked the cuff of his pants, showing old suture scars zigzagging a long, livid wheel, a hollow beneath the skin where he'd lost some muscle, two newer pink marks side by side. I figure that snake hit the steel plate that's holding my tibia together. That's right where the fangs went in. They didn't even treat me at the hospital but for a shot of antivenin just in case and bandages. And you know what? Duncan said that he didn't. I decided that, well, maybe it was God after all, giving me my own miracle. He called me out into the garden, the Garden of Eden, called me with crows, brought me there, and the serpent, well, he sure as hell found me. And he had me, Duncan. He had me dead to rights. I've done some wicked things in my time. A man can't hardly not these days. But then, God, it was God, I know that now. He reached down and saved me, healed me on the spot. See, Duncan, I said I'd lost my faith after the murders. This was how I found it again. This was how God found me. He beamed, spread his hands upon the Formica table, his fork down, his food forgotten. But didn't you say that you'd not been back to church? Jones' eyes deepened. Not that church. Not the Sunday one. Not with the boys and girls in their neat little rows. No, sir, I go to the true church. Don't need no priest to show me where God is. Not when he showed me himself. Uh, so does that make you Protestant or Unitarian? Something like that? <laughs> Duncan had never been able to keep track of all the Christian schisms. They seemed to him like children arguing over what an imaginary friend's favorite color was and hating each other forever after for it. Not even. I'll show you. Jones pulled on a jacket, brought him outside around the house. Towards a barn in the back, old, well-kept and unlit, a dark ship born on the waters of the onion fields. Duncan stumbled, stopped. Jones pushed him on. Maybe, Jones said, just maybe, God did send me up there that first time. He took the girls home to heaven young because they were innocent. He saved them from this world. I mean, that's how you got to figure it, right? Ours not to wonder why or some shit like that. And Magus, see, God took the girls home because they were innocent, but he left the boy here because he wasn't. See, I got it. That's the math, if you're God. Jones hauled the barn doors open. Darkness. Duncan stiffened. This is my church. This is where God lives truly. The lights came up slowly, the glow taking moments to collect in the wires of the old bulbs. 
Duncan saw twinklings, dozens and dozens of them, things glassy and rounded, rebounding the arc light in crescents and curves. Next, angles and shadows. It took him moments to understand. The barn was full of bright and terrible things, crucifixes and eyes, everywhere, everywhere, hung high and low, propped against walls, spread over the floor, leaning together like caltrops, the room full of crosses, huge and small, and bearing not Christ's but chimeras instead. Every corpus built from the body of a rattlesnake, stuffed and mounted along the long axes while severed crow's wings spread across every crossbar, frozen volant. The serpent's jaws unhinged in rickness, the dead wings molting feathers spendthrift. From each snake head stared two eyes, false and glass and bright, forced roughly into sockets which split to take them. Black wings wide, every eye green. And every serpent's gate mouth spilled flies, throats choked with them, a vomit of cellophane wings and blue-black bodies. Duncan stared in sheer and real terror. He shrank, cast about for any weapon that was not a cross, and found none. Jones advanced upon him, one slow step falling after another. Duncan staggered back, past racks of cut and hung wings, slit scaled skins, taxidermist tools, bags spilling sawdust, emptied gallon jugs from the porch, and drowned flies spread in bins to dry. Looking for another door and finding none, he thought he would run, prepared himself to dash past the old man out into the night, for his safety and sanity both. God sent his crows, Joe's intoned, to bring me understanding of the ways of the pure and the sinful and the righteous and the wicked. But I was too blind to see, for mine eyes had been merely given and not taken. So he sent me to Eden to know the serpent, and he saved me from its sting. He bore me up and he washed me clean in the waters of the Rubicon. Duncan gaped, gasped, what? He birthed me anew in the sin of venom and his cleansing grace renewed me. And Duncan was astonished to find himself advancing instead of retreating, fistfuls of Jones' jacket lapels in his hands as he bodily shook the mad old man. What did you just say? The name, the name of the river. Did you call it the Rubicon? Jones seemed not to mind the mild assault at all, only smiled sly. Oh, yes, not named or found on any map, but yes, we who know know it is the River Rubicon. Do you hear God calling you there, Duncan? Don't lie. I know lies. They sound like flies. Tell me where it is. No, no, you show me. And Jones smiled wide and wild. Yes, he said, placing his hands and turn on Duncan's shoulders, spinning him about amidst the sea of green eyes and needle fangs and gloss wings and dry dead scales, whirling madcap as though they were dancing, capering despite a slow leg while Duncan dragged at him. You want to go there, do you? He sent you to me for this. I knew at the moment I saw you half blind and searching, reached out and tapped one finger against Duncan's eye patch. One eye put right out, one left in to see. Do you see what you can't see? Serpents and crows and eyes everywhere. You've come to me, Duncan. You've come to find God's work there in the waters of the Rubicon. Confess your sins and I'll take you. I'll take you right there. Yes, yes, that's right, Duncan whispered, letting go his hands as Jones leapt and shook to raptures only his own. Take me there. Wondering what sort of deal he'd just made. Wondering just who or what he'd made it with. And not really wanting to know the answer at all. Thank you, Joshua. I'm I'm looking forward to reading that. That's very, that's very gripping. Um, I loved his uh, description of uh, his metaphor for the schisms of the Catholic Church. It <laughs> reminds me of uh, a day when I was babysitting my four-year-old daughter and her 
little friend from down the street and um, I was downstairs and I heard this blood curdling scream from upstairs and I came running up um, and fl- threw open the door of my daughter's bedroom and my daughter was sitting on the bed like this pouting and the neighbor girl was just in tears she was just weeping I said what's going on what's wrong and she, the neighbor points at my daughter and says she won't say green is pretty <laughs> I want to thank you all for um, coming uh, to read and to listen tonight. Uh, we have one. We have one reader left. Um, this, I really, I truly think this is the uh, the heart and soul of Litfest. These readings, um, and just think, some of what you hear read tonight, you may very well see on the shelves next year. So um, you're getting this great first look at this great talent. So um, congratulations to all of you read. Um, and thank you. And we have one last reader tonight. Um, we're going to go out on a on a high note. Uh, we have treat. Katie Peterson is our last reader. Woo-hoo! Um, Katie is uh, finishing uh, the book project uh, in novel. I think she just said she just turned in her second draft. Um, she is part of the fiction unbound speculative literature bloggers um and uh more to the point she used to be a clown from for ringling brothers um and now she teaches algebra uh katie's gonna read uh, a short story tonight called uh an elephant in alaska please welcome katie peterson I, this is the closest I can get to Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> but I got sparkles on my shoes. Okay. An elephant in Alaska. There was a smattering of applause as she ambled in, the ringmaster's goad brushing against her rump. There wasn't much room to walk around her when she stood in the ring. Her body looked badly put together, paunch too round, legs too short, ears too small. The elephant turned her head and fixed me with a doleful eye, a liquid bead, jet black and bound with wrinkles. Mud oozed up through the straw as she swayed first to one side, then to the other. Dad came home with three tickets last night, one for him, one for me, and an extra for Mrs. Malloy, the widow who lives across from us. He thought it was going to be some kind of magical night like... Uh, the circus would bring back some perfect childhood moment, conjure up a glimpse of mom, make up for him bringing us to this shabby shithole. The ringmaster scanned the audience. I shrank down in my seat, wedged between Mrs. Malloy's soft bulk and Dad's sharp elbows. You young sir, the ringmaster stood at the end of our row, pointing at me. What's your name? Jonathan... The ringmaster swept his arm out across the audience. Jonathan, he roared, our brave volunteer. Spittle sprayed from his mouth, backlit by the spotlight. At least no one from the high school was here to see. I could just imagine the ammunition this would give them. He put his hand on Mrs. Malloy's shoulder to steady himself and held out a red silk rose. The smell of whiskey and fish slammed into my face. Behind his droopy mustache, 
Yellow teeth jutted out like fangs. Mrs. Malloy turned her face away. I wrinkled my nose. The ringmaster's shoulders were bound tight in a threadbare red tailcoat a couple sizes too small. He stretched his pudgy little arm as far as it would go, white-shirted paunch swaying beneath him. If Dad had been hoping to recreate the perfect childhood moment, this wasn't going to be it. The ringmaster returned to the elephant and pointed the goad at me. If you would stand, please, young Jonathan. He raised his arms and gave a toot on his silver whistle. The elephant reached her trunk out as far as she could across the space between us. I stretched my arm towards her, stem held gingerly between my fingers. She snuffed. Warm, moist breath enveloped my arm to the elbow. Her truck tip formed a point, bristle stiff and thick that flexed like the alien fingers in a mittened glove. She folded the tip around the stem, gently tugged it from me, curled her trunk in around the flower and held it up. Mrs. Malloy gasped. The audience clapped. Dad patted me on the arm. Big smile. Nice work, John, John. Jeez, Dad. John, right. I'm not sure I like sitting this close, Mrs. Malloy said. I slammed back down into my plastic chair. The hard patter of rain on the tent made the applause sound louder than they were. The ringmaster blew on the silver whistle again. The elephant sat up on a barrel. Her front feet gently pawed at the air while she waved the fake flower above her head. Ladies and gentlemen, he called out. Gigi! He pranced around the ring in time to the music. Pathetic. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.